0: The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. In, in church. All right, if you've got your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. Lord, we love you today. Thank you for what you're doing in this church, and we thank you for the truth of your word that it sets us free, and as we look to it today, God, we invite you, the author of your word, to speak to us. We thank you that when we come into your presence and we worship you, and we thank you that you come and reside. So we know this room's, this room's full of people, but we also recognize it's full of you, and that you want to speak to us today. And so I pray, God, that your voice would be the loudest voice in this room, that you would... Uh, you would take this word and, and, and that I've studied and that you would make it in such a way that it becomes a personal word to every person in here today, that they, they would leave today feeling like, man, that message was for me. It was like, it was like God was talking to me, because we know that's who you are, God, that you love us and you want to speak to us. So Lord, I ask you to speak to your people. Anoint me for the next few moments, and we thank you, Lord, that you will be seen through this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to warn you up front. I'm going to step on some toes today, but if I step on toes, I'm not trying to step on your toes, okay? Really, I'm trying to step on the devil's toes today, all right? So if you start to feel a little bit of pressure today during this message, I know, like, you know, we've been a lot, of, a lot of good messages lately, but this one, there may be some moments where you kind of feel like, ee, that stings a little bit, but it's a good sting. Let me let me just tell you. Because what I want to do today is I want to expose Uh, A little bit of the tactics and the strategies of the enemy because there is a real enemy I'm gonna have to stay away from this side of the stage because it's like like a creaky door Okay, so i'm gonna be over here. I love you guys, but I gotta stay over here Otherwise, it sounds like you know Blair Witch Project or something. Okay, so i'm gonna avoid that side of the side of the stage All right, so um but, but I want to expose some of the work of the enemy, because that's what, part of what I'm called to do. The Bible talks about exposing the deeds of darkness, and so that's what I want to do today is help you to see how the enemy works, all right? So we're in a series right now called Stand, and we've been talking about uh, Daniel and some of his friends who were living in Babylon. They were living in a culture that wasn't for God, and that, that God enabled them, when they stood for God, God enabled them to stand out, and they were able to, uh, to affect the culture that they found themselves in. And I want you to know this morning that that's what God's called us to do. In fact, if you're taking notes, jot this down this morning. We either set culture or we reflect culture. In our life, we're either going to set culture or we're going to reflect culture. You've probably heard people say this before. You're either a thermostat or a thermometer. You guys heard that? A thermometer, what does it do? It just tells you the temperature of the room. It doesn't really change anything. It just tells you what's currently going on. But a thermostat has the ability to adjust what's happening. It can adjust the temperature of the room. I want you to know that's what God has called us to do. God has called us to be thermostats in this world, to change this world, to change and adjust the culture of this world, to make it a kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven. Can I get an amen? And beyond just the culture of the world as, a, as like this big idea of the world, God's called you to that in your homes. He's called you to that in your marriage, that, that you would be a thermostat as a spouse, that you'd be a thermostat as a parent, young people, students in here, that you would be a thermostat in your school. You know, you, you guys remember school, right? Some of you were in it. Remember school? Like school, like everybody's just kind of going in one direction, and if you're not going in the direction everybody else is going in, you're like a loser, nobody likes you, and that's kind of weird. But, but listen, God has called us to swim upstream against the culture of this world. He's called us to stand up and stand out for Him. And so your school needs that. They need somebody who will stand up for what's right and stand out in this culture. Jesus said it like this, Matthew 28, he said that we're to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The, The gospel message of Jesus Christ is a message that changes. For someone to be converted into a disciple means a conversion has taken place. They've changed And that's who God's called us to be. We're not called to be well-adjusted people. We're called to be adjusting people. God has called us to adjust the culture of this world, to make it look like heaven on this earth, to help people see the goodness of God, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, Jesus said it like this, Matthew 5. He said, let me tell you why you are here. So this is big. This is why you're here. This is why when you made Jesus the Lord of your life, it wasn't like you, you, you say, in Jesus' name, amen, I'm saved, and boom, he beams you up. You're still here. Why are you still here? This is why. Jesus gives you the insight. He says you're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? Listen, how people experience the goodness and the, and the tasting and seeing of God's goodness in this world through you. You're called to do something greater than just kind of going through life, living because you ain't dead yet. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Some may say, ouch. He goes on to say, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in this world. We're called to be salt and light. And understand this, salt and light are agents of change. Light makes things brighter. Salt makes things better. And that's who we're called to be. We're called to have that kind of influence. Thermostats impacting the culture, changing the culture. That's why we're here. That's why when Jesus was going to uh, to the cross, before he goes to the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. And he's getting ready to go to the cross and he's praying for us. Like how amazing is that? He's praying for us and he says this, John 17, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They, talking about Christians, are not of the world, even as I am not of it. If you're taking notes, jot this down. I'm not of it, but I'm still in it. We're not of the culture of this world, but we still exist in it, and we exist in it to win it, to win it for the kingdom of God, to convert people to the image of Christ Jesus, to convert ourselves and our families to look like Jesus in this world so people will see God in our life. They will taste and see the goodness and the plan of God. We're here to impact culture. So the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we live in this world that's ungodly, and how do we stand up and stand out for the things of God? Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand the tactic of the enemy and how he works against you. And one of the main ways the enemy works against us in this world is through a way of thinking. I'm calling it, uh, this message is called the me mentality, and you'll understand that more as we get into this. But it's a way of thinking that causes us to see the world the wrong way. And as I was, I was meditating and thinking about this this week, uh, God kind of reminded me uh, of this, this thing that's in, in filmmaking and in pictures sometimes called forced perspective. Anybody ever heard of forced perspective before that wasn't in first service? Okay, some of you, some of you. Forced perspective, here's what it is. With forced perspective, what you do is through a lens of a camera, you create a shot. And in the shot, you, you, you can make things look bigger. And smaller than they really are just by how you stage things and set things up in the shot. Uh, if you've seen the movie Elf, you guys remember that movie with Will Ferrell? You know what forced perspective is. Because in the beginning of this movie, when he was in the North Pole, they used a lot of forced perspective shots to make Will Ferrell look really big and the other people, the elves, who were not tiny people, they were actually normal-sized people, but they looked a lot smaller. Let me, let me show you what this looks like. i got a few pictures for you this morning. Here's one of the shots. Now, obviously, he looks huge there, but go to the next shot and check this out. This is what's actually going on. So you see he's elevated, he's in front, but go back to that first shot, guys. But through a certain lens, you can't see all that. What you see is what the filmmaker wants you to see. Go to, go to the third shot there, guys. This is another shot from the movie. You guys probably remember that. Buddy's riding his little bike around. He's got his dad on the back there. His dad looks really tiny, kind of on his shoulders. Here's what this shot actually looked like when they were putting it together. So you got the elf there, and then you've got another little kid behind him with his hands on his shoulders. And then dad is, is a little bit further back. And through this perspective, everything looks different than what it actually is. Now, I tell you this because I believe that the enemy works to create a forced perspective, false reality in this world. He wants to paint a picture and get you looking at the world, looking at your problems, looking at yourself, looking at God through a lens that causes certain things to look big and certain things to look small. And the reason why I believe this is one of the tactics of the enemy is because a forced perspective shot does not employ power. It employs deception. And that's how the devil works. Just so you know, Satan ain't got no real power. Remember when I was a little kid, there was a song. Satan ain't got no power unless you give it to him. Jesus whipped him in a mighty battle. He did not have to do it again. Anybody? No, just me? Okay. But it's true. And I learned it as a kid. That The devil doesn't have any real power. You know what the devil's power is? Deception. You know how he beats you? He can't really beat you, but what he can do is he can get you to beat yourself. So he tricks you, and he deceives you, and he causes you to see things a certain way. And one of the great lies of the enemy is a lie that he infiltrated this world with at the very beginning, when he came to Adam and Eve, and he started this deception lie Painting a picture of what was going on in the world and it was a false reality. And here's the lie. Here's kind of the, 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 the genesis of the lie that happened in Genesis. Here's what he said. He, he said this. He said, I'm all about you and God, really, God's just all about himself. Because here's what Satan was doing. Satan was betting on this idea. He's gonna push all his chips into the middle. He's gonna bet on you exalting you. Because he knows something. He knows something that maybe you don't recognize or, or know, something that the great theologian Terrell Owens taught us many years ago about ourselves. He said this. You probably remember this incredible statement. He said, I love me some me. Anybody remember that? We all kind of love us some us, though. We do. We love us. And, and, you know, in a way, it's kind of okay to a point. Like, God doesn't want you to hate you He doesn't want you to, you know, be just kind of indifferent to you. Like God expects you to care about yourself. And in fact, Jesus taught us that if we could just love our neighbor like we love ourselves, we could change the world. (laughs) So there's there's something to us having a natural affection towards ourselves. It's just that the enemy wants to take that affection and he wants to twist it and he wants to make it an an unnatural affection where we put ourselves in the place of God, where we exalt us or the lens of our life is looked at from this perspective of we're really big and we're really great see here's 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 the me mentality I'm great and I got this I'm great and I got this the devil man if he can get you to believe that he's pumped because if he can get you to believe that he disconnects you from the God who really is great and who really with you uh, like like David was talking about I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me Not I can just do anything I want to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Somebody say, this is good preaching. preaching. He's stepping on someone's toes. (laughs) I'm stepping on the devil's toes. I'm pulling back the curtain. He didn't like it. And you may may not feel good right now, but I'm sure just just stay with me because there's there's a revelation in this that will help you so much. The enemy wants to get you to believe this because see, here's the deal with Satan. Satan's goal is not to get you to worship the devil. Satan's goal is to get you to worship anyone but God. And he knows that the greatest rival for your affection is you. Because we love us some us. And so he plays on that. And he tells us, You are great. You're great. And what you want is great. What you desire is great. What you feel is great and it's right. And how dare anyone tell you that what you want is not right? What you feel is not great. That's not true. That Bible stuff, that's old school. That's ancient thinking. There's a new world. There's, this is a new way, and that's old. God is small. The word of God is small. You're great, and you're good, and what you want is good, and you got this. You don't, you don't need that Bible stuff. And then he prays on you. But here's the problem. That way of thinking always leads to chaos and division and confusion. And we see it in the Bible. It's not very long after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden where they buy into the lie of Satan, that we come to Genesis 11 and we find people building a tower to the heavens. And it says this in Genesis 11, verse four, and they said, come and let us build ourselves. Notice the emphasis. A city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name for ourselves. We're great and we need to make a monument to us. It's the me mentality, and it leads to confusion. So what happens? You know the story. After this happens, God confuses their language, and it leads to confusion and division and chaos. And you know, you look at the world today, the world that we find ourselves in, and what do we see? Confusion and division and chaos. Why? Because so many people have bought into this me mentality. So many people are trying to live a life apart from God. I'm great. I got this. I can do it on my own. I don't really need God. Let me just tell you, you need God. And so Daniel chapter four, we we find a story of a king who was building a kingdom for himself and he had the me mentality all over him. If you've been doing the the 21 day devotional with us, you read this story this week. It's a very unique story in that um, this, this, this chapter of the Bible was actually written by Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile king, and that's very unique to the Bible. And he's writing... His, his story from his perspective of coming to God. So look at this with me. Uh, Daniel chapter four, starting in verse four, says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So notice this. He's in his palace. He's got this kingdom. He's the king of his kingdom. He's ruling and reigning, and he's content, and he's prosperous, he's happy. Now let me just remind you, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar that we just read about last week, that build, uh, built a 90-foot statue to himself and told everyone that they needed to worship it. And if they didn't, he was going to throw them into a fiery furnace. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't do what he says. So what does he do? He throws them into this furnace, and they don't get killed. They live. God, God supernaturally protects them. And when they come out of the fire, what does Nebuchadnezzar say? Your God is God. So get this. He acknowledges, he recognizes, he believes in, in God he's just not submitted to God. Not really. He's submitted to the own, his own rule and reign. And there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people that believe in God. It's not enough to just believe in God. You know, the demons and Satan believe in God. It's that we submit our life to God. Jesus needs to be the Lord of your life, but that's not where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's the Lord of his own life. He's content. He's happy. He's not really connected to God like he should be, and he's pretty satisfied with where he's at. So it goes on from here, and I'm not going to read all of this because it would take us too long, but he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this big tree, big, luscious, amazing, fruitful tree over the nation, and the tree gets chopped down. And all that's left of this tree is the stump and the roots. And so he wakes up From this dream, and he recognizes that there's something to it, but he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what this means, but there's something in him that tells him he needs to try to figure this out. And so he turns to his guys, his enchanters, his magicians, and he asks them to give him an interpretation, but they don't know. They don't know what to do. And so then he remembers oh, yeah, there's that Hebrew boy. Belteshazzar, we know him as Daniel, have him come in. He's interpreted dreams before. Let's see if he knows. And so he brings in Daniel, and sure enough, God gives Daniel a revelation of what the dream is all about, which, by the way, notice Daniel is influencing culture right here. It says in verse 22, your majesty, you are the tree. Bummer, right? Like, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, it's like, oh, no. And realize, like, too, I love the boldness of Daniel. This guy's been throwing people in furnaces, and he's just like, yeah, you're going to get cut down, bro. Neb, it ain't going to look good. You got to change. He goes on to say, verse 25, you will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched in the dew of heaven. In other words, you're going to go crazy. Seven times will pass, or in other words, there's going to be seven years that go by until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of earth. He says this is going to go on until you recognize that God is God. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored. When you acknowledge that heaven rules, when heaven rules. And that doesn't mean like, that's not like Bill and Ted's like, heaven rules, no, no, no. (laughs) Heaven rules means when you recognize God is God and you are not So he says, hey, Neb, bro, you got a wrong perspective. You're seeing the world the wrong way. You think you're bigger than you are, and you're not. And you're going to get cut down unless you acknowledge. When you acknowledge God's God, you'll be restored. So there's this warning, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. And, And a few verses later, he steps out into his garden, which, by the way, his garden is not like a little tomato garden that he's got it's the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's a pretty great garden, like one of the wonders of the world. But he steps out into that and he's looking at it and he's just thinking about how awesome he is. He says this in verse 31, or verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Oh boy. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal royal authority has been taken from you. Immediately what he had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. A supernatural insanity hit this dude, like supernatural. He begins immediately to to crawl around on all fours, crazy, eating grass like an ox. His hair grows like feathers, nails like claws. It says he was drenched with the dew of heaven. That's actually a picture. The dew of heaven is a picture of the presence of God. And if you know anything about the Old Testament before Jesus, People in the presence of God, you, it was hard to be in the presence of God, and you would be undone in the presence of God, and so theologians think this means that he probably lost the ability to, to see, to speak, and to hear. Blind, deaf, dumb, eating like an ox, feathers growing out, he's like bird, animal man. Crazy, right? And we, we hear this and we're like, man, them Bible stories, <laughs> you know, but this really happened. In fact, it's interesting. If you study from a historical perspective, the kingdom of Babylon, you're going to find something, that they kept really good records of the kings and the works that they did. The one thing that they didn't always write down was the mistakes of the kings. And so when you look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, there's really good records, and then there's a seven-year period from 582 to 575 BC of silence. Why? Because he was man. really happened so so get this church Nebuchadnezzar is living this self-absorbed life he's living with the me mentality he's living from this perspective that's that's so warped that he literally believes he's a God in fact when he says he makes this statement he says I've built this by my mighty power if you study that out he, he was actually saying in that moment I am the cause the origin the controller and the source of all my greatness He literally believed he's a God and the world revolves around him. And God looks at that and he says, that kind of thinking is insane. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you to see what's really going on here. So I'm going to make the position of his heart to be reflected on the outside. Because see, Nebuchadnezzar is a me monster on the inside. And so what does he become? A me monster on the outside. And what was going on in his heart is reflected in his life. And I want you to know, in any area of your life where you are living from the me monster mentality, where you kind of said, I got this, I'm good, I'm the king of this area, anywhere that you do that, you're inviting chaos and confusion and insanity into that area of your life. I'm not saying everything you face is because of this, but... Some of what you're dealing with is because you've said, hey, I've elevated myself. I'm great. I'm big. I got this. And you've listened to the lies of the enemy. He's convinced you that God's trying to keep you from something. He's convinced you that God's ways of thinking are old, and the Bible is is ancient, and it doesn't really apply to you. And that was for that time, but this is a new time, and things are evolving, and things are changing, and you're you're actually evolving with the times, and you're great, and what you want is great, and what you feel is great, and what you, you desire is great. So, because you're great, I want you to know today you're not so great. <laughs> Turn to the person by and say, "You ain't so great. Apart from God, you ain't so great." Didn't expect to hear that at church, did you? <laughs> but it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory, you know. Amen. The best thing you have to offer to the world is Christ. Holy it's Christ. Jesus. Yes. And we got to acknowledge that. You're limited. And yes, you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God, yes. But there are limits to your goodness and your greatness. And we need the Lord. And, and you need to recognize that you need the help of God. And where you don't acknowledge that, you live in a place of chaos, so maybe today you got some chaos in your marriage because you've said, I got this. I don't need God in my marriage. Like, you know, I don't, I don't need to understand what the Bible says about marriage. I don't need to go to, go to classes at church that talk about marriage. Like, I, I, we're married. We love each other, you know. When we have good seasons and bad seasons. It's all, we got this. We're good. I, I don't need to really understand the purpose of God for my life. Like, I got my own purpose right now, and it's a good purpose pretty great purpose. I'm pretty great. I got a plan. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of great. I don't know that I can go serve in a kid's class. Stepping on toes. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Maybe you got some chaos in your thinking because you've never submitted your thoughts to God. You've never submitted the way you think. I got some areas. I know my thought life isn't where it should be in some areas, but, you know, it'll eventually work itself out. I got this. It's all good. I got this. I'm, I'm great. I'll figure it out eventually. Any area of your life where you have allowed the me monster to take up the throne where you've said, I got this. Guess what? You got this. And just so you know, you're a really poor excuse for a God. You're not the savior of your life. Jesus came to be your savior and he's a really good savior. And so I know that maybe I'm stepping on some toes, but but here's the good news. I'm exposing how the enemy's trying to manipulate you so that you can see, so we can move a little bit to the left and see stuff through the lens of Scripture. Because once you see, the illusion is broken, and now you can see what's really going on, and you can understand how to navigate and live your life. And once you turn to God, just so you know, as soon as you turn to God, He's there for you. In fact, we see this in in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Look at verse 34. At the end of the time, so after seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. That means he finally acknowledges God is God. He says, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most Hi, Nebuchadnezzar began to worship God. Check this out. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth is regarded as nothing. He's going, hey, God is good. I am not. God is amazing. He's powerful. He rules. He reigns, not me. He goes, he, God, does as he he pleases with, with the power of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Check this out, at the the same time that my sanity was restored, his confusion was gone, at the same time, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Listen, church, one of the lies of the enemy is that God wants to steal away your life and take away good things from you. God didn't want to take away the kingdom reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He just wanted Nebuchadnezzar to recognize that God is God and he is not. And as soon as he recognized that, he gave him back his kingdom and it was restored and it was even greater than before. Listen, when, God's, when God has rules and things in, his, in the word that he's asking us to submit our life to, it's not because he's trying to take anything from you. It's because he wants to give you something better because we believe the lie that we know better and we don't. We don't got this, church. And when we recognize God's rule, it changes everything. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. Nebuchadnezzar got saved. And look at this last part. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. (laughs) Here's how God put it to me this week. If you walk in pride, you're eventually going to crawl around aimlessly. And a lot of the world, that's what we're doing, crawling around aimlessly because we're walking in pride. Because at the root of this me mentality is the sin of pride. Pride says, I got this, I got this, but we don't got this. And I want you to know this morning that God hates pride. You know God hates some stuff? Yeah. He hates pride. In fact, look, let me show you, Proverbs 6, 16. These six things the Lord hates. God hates some stuff. That's the Bible. This is the Bible I'm reading here, just so you know. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now look at the first thing on the list. A proud look. God hates pride. When it says a proud look here, it's not talking about like, you know. It's not talking about an expression of the face. It's talking about a posture of the heart. And the posture of the heart is I got this. I'm pretty great. I got this. I can do this on my own. I'm a big boy. Doesn't look so good, does it? It says God hates pride. Why does God hate pride? Because he loves you. God hates pride because pride hurts you. It it leads to destruction. In fact, James 4, 6 says this. It says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word resist there means a full frontal resistance. In other words, God gets in front of the person walking in pride and he puts up a resistance against them. You say, well, what's up with that? Like, he just doesn't like proud people, arrogant, cocky people. God just kind of has a thing against that. No, remember, God hates pride because God loves you and pride hurts you. Because see, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, a haughty and arrogant, a prideful spirit, before a fall. See, pride is blinding. In fact, the word pride, the Hebrew word typhoon means blind. It means wrapped up in fog. Pride is blinding. You can't see properly when you're walking in pride. It, it, let, me, let me try to illustrate this for you. Imagine that there's someone in your life. I want you to picture and think of a person in your life that you love dearly, a person that you, you, you care about so much. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a, a person in your school. I, I don't know who it is, but I want you to think about them. Imagine that you saw them and they were walking across a field. And you could tell it was them, but you couldn't see their face, because around their head was like a cloud, like a little foggy cloud around their head, and, and the rest of their body, you could see their body, but you couldn't see their face. And they're just walking with this fog, trying not to cave in the stage. <laughs> but they're walking. And, and what you can see that they can't see is ahead of them is this giant cliff, and it's, I mean, it's the kind of cliff that if you go off this cliff, you're not just going to get hurt. It's going to lead to destruction. It is going to kill you. And so they're heading towards it. And remember, you love them, right? So what are you going to do? If it's me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to run over and I'm going to get in between them and the cliff and I'm going to resist them. And they may say, what are you doing? Get out of my way. I'm going somewhere here. I've got a plan here. I'm going. But you're going, no, 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 don't. This is not good. You don't want to go in this direction. This is a picture of what God's doing. God gets in between us and pride because he knows if we keep walking this way, it's going to lead to a fall. It's going to lead to chaos. It's going to lead to destruction. So listen, God resists pride. Are you? You have to resist it too. It's not enough that God just resists it, because guess what? You can push past God. He'll resist you, and he'll try to stop you, and he'll try to put stuff in place to block you from destruction, but you can walk through his barricades if you choose to, and you can fall off the cliff. So what do we have to do? We have to choose to walk in humility. Look at what uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says. It says that we're to be clothed with humility, be clothed with humility. Anytime the Bible talks about being clothed, being dressed, putting on something, it means it doesn't happen automatically. This morning when you got up to come to church, I doubt any of you woke up, just stood up in your room like Iron Man, and your clothes just leapt onto you. No, you had to go to the closet, and you had to spend some time picking out your clothes. And if you're any like me, sometimes it takes a while. I gotta try on outfits. I'm like a girl when it comes to this. I'm trying stuff on, asking Sarah, "What do you think? Is this good?" <laughs> but you gotta figure it out. It takes intentionality, right? And 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 the, that's the point. Humility is not something that's automatic for anybody. It takes intentionality. We have to choose to put it on. We have to choose to say, I'm going to be be humble. It goes on to say this, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the second time we've seen that. Verse six, therefore, humble yourselves. Who does the humbling? We do. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse seven, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you goes on to say, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who he may devour. He's looking for someone who'll walk around in pride, because here's what happens. We walk around in pride, this thief that's looking to steal, kill, and destroy. It's like we've left the doors and the windows open to our life. And so this known thief is gonna break in and he's gonna steal and he's going to cause chaos and he's going to do damage. So we gotta, we got to lock those doors. we got to close those windows by choosing to be humble. So what do we do? Look back at verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. We humble ourselves. And how do we do it? Verse 7, by casting our cares on him. Here's how you become humble. You pray. You pray. Yeah. Because think about it. Prayer, when we pray... What we're really doing is we're saying, God, I don't got this. I need you. I'm inviting you in because I don't got this. See, prayerlessness is a form of pride. But prayer is a form of humility. And in the same way that prayer says, I got this, listen, understand this. When you don't pray, when you have areas of your life that you're not inviting God into, what you're saying is, I got this please hear me, church, you don't got this. You don't got this. God did not create you to got this on your own. He created you to be connected to him. He created you to be connected in the body of Christ, in the church. And there's power in that. God looked at Adam in the Garden of Eden and said, it's not good, this is not good. You don't got this. You got this is not good. And so, so here's the thing. We don't got this. And prayer, when we pray, we're inviting God in. We're saying, God, I need you. And when you invite him, he comes. Because if you've been around New Song Church, uh, any amount of time, you've heard me say, God is an invite-only God. He doesn't go where he's not invited. But I think sometimes we, we get our thinking off, you know? I think we see God from a, the wrong lens because the enemy, he's got a lens. He's trying to show us God through it. So we start to think like, you know, it's kind of like you, you're having a party and you want to invite somebody to the party. And there's somebody that would be really cool if they showed up at the party, but they're probably not going to come. So like, why would I waste an invitation on them? They got a lot going on, so I'm not going to invite them. I'll just, I'll just hope that they crash the party. But the, God didn't work that way. I want you to know, God's an invite-only God and He, he, he shows up 100% of the time you invite Him. He is the guest of honor, and he will always show up. Yeah. But if you have this mentality that, well, you know, he's God, and he's all-knowing and stuff, and, and so I'll just, I'll just hope he shows up. Like, he knows what's going on with me, and he'll, he'll show up when he wants to show up. God is not a party crasher. He is not a party crasher. Revelation 3.20 tells us, Jesus gives us insight into how God works. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Like, I, I love that. He's not just behind the door. He's knocking. He wants in. He's, he's asking. That knock is, is him asking if you'll open the door. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, who opens the door? We do. He doesn't kick down the door. He doesn't barge in. He doesn't break in. He's knocking, but we have to invite him in. But look at what he says. I will come in. He doesn't say I might come in. I will come in and dine with him and he with me. When you open the door, God doesn't look in and go, what are you cooking? What you making in there? Is that pork? I don't, I don't do pork. I don't, that's. No, no, no. As soon as you open the door, he comes in and he dines with you. Dine is a picture of intimacy. Like when you're dining with someone, like you sit across from them and you can talk to them and you can share with them and they can talk to you. Like that's the kind of relationship God wants with you. He's not a distant God. He wants to be close to you, and prayer says, God, come on in. God, I need you. In front of us every day is an opportunity to invite the God of the universe into our life. Like I tell my kids this sometimes if there was a person out there and they had all the wisdom you could ever ask for, and they had all the money you could ever need, and they could do supernatural things like fix fix your problems and empower you to do things that are beyond your own ability and strength if that person existed and you knew that they wanted to be in your life and you didn't let them in what would that make you my kids are like an idiot stupid (laughs) out of the mouths of babes but a lot of us that's how we live our life we wake up and we're like we have the choice Bible says I place before you life and death and and he's life Jesus is life his word is life so every day we have an opportunity to say God I'm inviting you in and maybe today maybe you've got some chaos in your life and in a certain area of your life and maybe if you're being honest with yourself it's because you haven't invited God into that area Maybe you got some chaos in your finances because you haven't invited God into your finances. You haven't submitted to his will and purpose for your finances. Maybe you have some chaos in your purpose. I don't know know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm, I got college coming up. I don't know, I'm almost done with college. I don't know what I'm gonna do next because you've never said, God, what do you wanna do? Not my will, but yours be done. You're still trying to be big in your own eyes. You believe the lie. You're great, you'll figure it out. The devil is a liar, church. You gotta recognize that. But God is good and he's for you and he wants to help you and he wants you to be a thermostat. He wants you to impact culture. The enemy wants to lie to you. He wants to make you feel really big and like you gotta do it all on your own. He wants to make your problems seem big. He wants to make your fears seem big so you don't walk in faith. He wants to to convince you of this lie that God is small and put God in a box. But the truth is God is God and you are not. And when you acknowledge that and invite him into your life, you get God. How cool is that? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.